Joseph Ryan, in his commentary on the book of John, uh, he sets up his thoughts uh, on this passage, referencing in a theater idea called upstaging. He says this, a familiar term from the theater is when one actor upstages another. Technically, that is when all the other actors currently on the stage, they turn their backs to the audience like this, when a new actor comes onto the stage to force all the attention on this newcomer. Now, more commonly, to upstage someone simply means to become the center of attention. Here, John the Baptist is saying that it is time for Jesus to step into the spotlight to upstage John. And the timing is according to the perfect, precise stage directions of the great playwright. It's a great thought as we uh, look into this text today. Uh, throughout this message, we'll unpack what all that means. But let me start and ask you a personal question. Have you in your life or recently been upstaged before? If so, how did it make you feel? And how did your heart respond? What do you do when someone comes into the picture and takes away attention from you? Uh, how deeply does that affect your sense of worth? We'll unpack all that and see how this passage addresses uh, this struggle, which I'm sure many of us have. Uh, but just as a setup, as we come to this section of John chapter 3, just to give a brief recap, during this period in Israelite history, the messianic expectation was at an all-time high. It was at fever pitch. People were longing. They were waiting. They were expecting the prophesied Savior to come and redeem Israel from all their enemies. And because of this, incredible spiritual revival was taking place where so many people were repenting of their sins, turning their lives to the Lord. And so much of that was because of John the Baptist. So much, in fact, that many, many people questioned and wondered, hey, this guy, could he be the Messiah? And a lot of people were actually convinced that he was so. And so as this was all taking place from what we've read so far, Jesus, the true Messiah, comes on to the scene. And John points him out. And if you remember from actually the last message I gave a few weeks ago, I happened to be speaking about John the Baptist back then as well. But he says, look the Lamb of God. And many crowds of people who even were once followers of John, disciples of John, they now flocked after Jesus. And so now what was taking place was the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of John the Baptist. It was now overlapping as they were preaching and baptizing now in the very, very same region. And so as Jesus' popularity was rising, we now have this very interesting and a little bit of an awkward situation on our hands where you had your group of people who flocked after Jesus and followed him, but you also had your group of people who stuck around and stayed with John the Baptist. And during a period of time when it was common to see numerous rivalries taking place, tensions between two camps in a lot of different public spheres, whether, whether it was politics, whether it was in the arts, theater, poetry, uh, educa higher education, universities, teachers, professors, many people looked at the situation as, oh, here goes another rivalry. And they reacted. And they questioned what was happening in this entire situation. 
And so in this message, we'll examine what took place here. We'll examine the way John's disciples reacted to this. Then we'll see how John the Baptist answered them in their struggles. And we'll learn a few very, very important lessons along the way. So I have three parts to this message. Number one, uh, the disciples' problem. Number two, John's peace. And number three, Jesus' power. Jesus' power to save. So first, we'll look at number one, the disciples' problem. And I'll just start off by naming this problem for us because it's, it's pretty clear as we read this text. The problem of the disciples was misplaced security. Misplaced security. Uh, look with me at verses 22 to 24 as we see how things are set up. There they are, Jesus and, um, and his disciples in the Judean countryside. Remaining there, they were baptizing. John, verse 23, also was baptizing in a nearby area. The water was plentiful. We see the differences between their ministries. John's baptism, his message was, has been one where the theme was expectation, you know, preparing the way for the Lord. And Jesus, his message at all is one about fulfillment, proclaiming that he was now here to fulfill all those uh, prophecies. And already uh, in verses 25 to 26, we see some of that tension that that was causing. A discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. A bit of a theological debate, I'm sure, that arose because of the different camps that were at work here. And so as this discussion was going on, the disciples noticed what's going on here that Jesus was coming onto the scene and attracting a lot of followers. They turn to John, their rabbi, and say, Rabbi, look, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing them, and all are going to him. Now, first glance is like, are they just making an objective observation here? No, because if we read further down, John has to answer them. That he has to correct the misunderstanding here. So backtracking a little bit now here, they get distracted. They're concerned about the whole situation. They're like, uh, John, teacher, rabbi, are you starting to lose your steam here? Are you fade? Is your light fading? Your attendance is going down. It's decreasing. People who were once part of your group, your community group, they're leaving and they're joining this other group now. Something's not right here. And they describe the situation saying he, they don't even name Jesus. He says, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Look, they're all going to him. There's a little bit of fear in their hearts that their reputation will be affected by all this. They're bothered. Their jealousy is put on display here. And this is all a little bit puzzling because as we read this, John, he still had a lot of followers on the scene, according to the passage. But as we all know, we see the effect of how when we're extremely anxious or worried about something, it can all, always lead us, so often and all, almost always lead us to grossly exaggerate the circumstances that are in front of us. We think things are worse than they really are. Again, we see the way John addresses them, and that's why you know, their, their own issues are exposed, in the issues of their hearts. But before we do that, let me just reiterate the question that I started with at the beginning of this message. How do you respond when something like this happens to you? When someone comes into your life, they start to intrude your space, your stage. You're doing your own thing. You're trying your best. And they take away the attention that was once yours. We have a lot of students here today. If you're a student here this morning, maybe uh, you're here in this stage of your life. And growing up, during grade school, high school, you used to be the smartest in your class, considered the brightest, uh, top. Everyone looked up to you. Everyone gave you respect. But here you are now in this huge, prestigious university and you just can't help but feel like a small fish in a big pond. So many people have intruded your stage. 
I know that's caused a lot of mental anxiety for people in, in recent years. Maybe that's true of you at work. You work hard, people respected you, they look to you, they ask you questions, advice about stuff. Then some young hotshot comes up and then they intrude your stage, they take up the, all the attention that's yours and they get, the employer looks more fondly upon them than they do to you. I know that as a parent, sometimes I feel this way. You know, we love our children, we think they're cute. I hope as a parent you think your, your children are the cutest, but then there's all these other children around. The attention has to be spread out. Sometimes your, maybe your parenting, your child gets forgotten. You can't help but wonder, come on, you know, how come nobody's paying attention to our family? You know, this is so true on social media, right? There's a lot of just like intruding, upstaging going on. You're, you're posting stories and constantly posting, you know, pictures and, and captions and stuff. You work so hard on it. It could be about a recap of your semester. It could be about an event you attended, something big that happened in your life. And then someone in the same day, they'll, they'll show up on your feed, post the same thing, and it's kind of this race to see who'll get more likes, more attention, more responses. You know, and we can't help but feel that way. I know some of, some of us, our jobs, you know, it, it's, 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 it revolves around putting, putting social media posts out there that needs attention in order for your popularity to grow and to, and to earn a living and stuff like that, but it becomes obsessive. You know, when you feel like you want to be the center of attention online, but someone, someone intrudes your space and takes it from you. I know us pastors sometimes can feel this way. You know, we're up here trying to make clear truths and offer good teaching, and then some other preacher from another church or on the same team comes along, says it, and, and it seems to be so much better. And, and we feel like sometimes we've got to exert ourselves to, to a little bit more uh, to, to communicate it in the same way. We've got to fight our insecurities. But this is the nature of our hearts. Apart from God's intervening grace, we have to admit we're incredibly self-centered people. To us, we're the most important people in the world. And everyone else, they're like props in the background. There's always going to be someone better. We can't control that. But we have to always examine how we react. Why? Why am I getting jealous? Why am I getting mad? Why do I feel threatened? Sometimes we'll react by becoming depressed or withdrawn, right? Like, oh, why even try? They're all better than me. And, just, and your sense of worth gets damaged. You feel like you can't even enjoy the things in front of you, whether, whether you're a musician or an athlete, or you're, you're an artist trying to do things, and it's just such a struggle when someone's always better than you, and it kind of kills your self-confidence because you're just trying to keep up. Another way we can react is by just powering up. It's like, oh man, shoot, man, these people are better than me, I gotta beat them. And we become motivated, and not just motivated, overly motivated, to the point of obsession, where we can't even sleep or rest until we get to where we want to be, to surpass those we feel threatened by. We'll work, 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 practice, 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 so we can get that attention back, get that praise back. And if you're honest, that is tiring. It is so exhausting when you feel like you're chasing the wind and you can't get people to focus on you. Well, John the Baptist's disciples definitely had their security in the wrong place. They should have been celebrating the Messiah, Jesus. But you know what they did? They placed their security in their association with John the Baptist and the success of his ministry because why? That made them feel better about themselves. They were attached to something that was good, bigger than them. And when that was threatened, they, they panicked. Oh no, what are we going to do? 
my precious brothers and sisters here today? Have you misplaced your security? Are you, are you attaching yourself to something that's not going to always be guaranteed to be there for you? Are you lacking joy and experiencing misery today as a result? If so, let me encourage you that God sees you. He sees you to the core of who you are and everything that you struggle with. And he loves you and he understands. And he says, I'm here to minister to you today. And as I, as I was preparing this message, I was so encouraged that not, it's this whole struggle, it's addressed here in this passage, but it's dressed in a way that's very, very practical and powerful and real. And I want to now move on to my second part here. Let's look at John's peace. John's peace. As we see in the way he responded, he was not bothered at all. Look with me at verses 27 through 30. John answered, a person cannot, even, cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. In verse 30, he must increase and I must decrease. Man, you know, as I read this, it, I was just so blown away. Because not, it's not just that John was unfazed by everything. It's not like he, he was just occupied by something. He didn't see what was going on. He says he was happy. He was rejoicing. This joy of mine is now complete. Why? And it's so clear here. It's because he truly knows and understands Jesus and what he is all about, what his mission is all about, what his kingdom is all about. And that just makes so much sense, right? Because think about what he's been doing all along. He's been preaching messages about repentance, saying, I'm just a voice crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. He who comes after me, I am not worthy to even untie the thongs of his sandals. He ranks before me because he was always before me. And as I stand here today and see him doing his work, I have seen and I bear witness to you that this indeed is the Son of God. He's pointing us to the very theme of the book of John, where we're, we're, we're urged and we're pointed to really, really believe and accept that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He's divine. He is God himself who came to this world as a divine God wrapped in human flesh so that we can be saved. His message all was all about pointing the attention to Jesus from the very beginning. And so when he finally came along, John sees Jesus. And where his disciples were all bothered, he's like, that's not my, that's not my competition. That's not some other leader down the street that I'm competing with, that I have to get all, all territorial about, about my people and make sure they don't go there. No. John proclaims, look, the Lamb of God who came to be slain for sinners, he knew right away that that's God on earth, not another prophet. That's where his peace and security came from, knowing and understanding Jesus. Maybe that's our issue today. Some of the things we struggle with, it all comes down to, do you behold, understand, and know Jesus, his role in your life, what his mission is, and what your call is as his follower. 
And how seriously are you taking it? Follow these verses with me, verses 27 on. We'll just unpack this more. John says, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. John's basically saying there, you know, all the good things that are happening, my ministry, my calling as a prophet, the fact that I'm baptizing, preaching, and people are being changed, all this revival. That's not from me. It's given to me from heaven, verse 27. I have no reason to boast. I have no right to get angry if my followers follow Jesus because I, the fact that I can do anything good in this world is because of God in the first place. And this Jesus, his ministry is marked by heaven because he came from heaven. And it's a no-brainer. His ministry is more important than mine. So I have no room in my heart to get jealous. Verse 28, you yourselves bear witness with me that I said, I am not the Christ. He kept saying, I am not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. So I don't need you to bow down and worship me. When the true Messiah in Christ comes, you worship him. If I were to somehow covet in other worlds, like, oh, I'm so jealous of Jesus. I want, I want his, I wish, why can't I be the Messiah? Why can't I be the one that everyone worships and, and points people out to? Then that's just so arrogant to think that we know better than God. To dishonor the call that God had given John the Baptist. And he knew that. Jesus comes, hey, I'm, I'm going to step off the stage now. No more. No more mic, mic, microphones for me. Give it to Jesus. And in verse 31 to 36, he just drives it home. He who comes from above is above all, meaning God is from heaven. That means he is the center of the universe, and I'm not. Because if I'm, if, when I think I'm the center of the universe, if something doesn't go my way, then, man, that's a bad day. That's a rough day. That's when I start getting mad at people. I start getting frustrated at my family. That's when I, I start to question God. And that's when I go, go through all sorts of different struggles in my faith. Believing that God is the center of the universe. Verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Here's Jesus preaching this message and he's still being rejected just to prove that he is the Messiah. All that was prophesied about him. Verse 33 and 34, He whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives a spirit without measure. The Holy Spirit is on him. And it's not just a, a small portion or a temporary portion. It's always without measure. In verse 35 to 36, The Father loves the Son, giving all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And that sums up everything we've been hearing in John chapter 3 so far. These words John the Baptist was proclaiming because it was on his heart. And he knew without a shadow of a doubt that even as he was involved in such a fruitful ministry, he didn't want the credit. Nothing revolved around him. And so that's why he says in verse 30, he must increase and I must decrease. Just think about, think about those two phrases there. It's so, so profound. He must increase. I'm, meaning, I have no choice. This is the determined, sovereign, unfading will of God. John the Baptist, he's not just you know, grudgingly conceding to a superior opponent who he has no chance to bring down. No, he says, I embrace the will of God. There's no option for me. If the God of heaven says, John, you're going to be a forerunner. You're going to be a voice in the wilderness. Then so be it. I have no choice. I can't say anything. I have to decrease. And if Jesus is the fulfillment of everything I ever preached, if he is the true Messiah, he's going, to be, he's going to die and rise again one day and save the world, then there's no question in it. He must increase. I'm not here to show people what a great prophet I am. 
I'm going to step off the stage. I'm going to get behind the spotlight. I'm going to shine it on him. I don't care what people say about me or think about me. I don't care if I'm the last name and the credits that roll at the end of this performance because I want Jesus' name to be the biggest one. And it doesn't matter one bit what kind of acknowledgments I get, what kind of credit I get, because I'm secure. That's what he was saying. Just to illustrate this a little bit better, a little bit more clearly, sometimes preachers, we need to do this too. We need to share like analogies, stories to, to make the point hit home more. He uses the analogy of a wedding. It's a big, big wedding season these days. I feel like there's a wedding every, every two weeks. And a little bit fitting because actually Jesus, a couple of passages previous to this, he just performed a miracle at a wedding. So I'm sure it's on his mind. And in verse 29, he says, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So the first thing John's doing there, he's saying Jesus is the groom. Jesus is the bridegroom, right? He's uh, he, multiple places in the scriptures. He's the bridegroom. The bride is the church. That's, that's such a vivid, powerful illustration of uh, Christ and his relationship to his people. But it's interesting here that he refers to himself, this word called shoshpin, which means friend of the bridegroom. He's just a friend. He's not the, he's a friend of the bridegroom, which is pretty much the modern day equivalent to the best man. A Shoshvin back then, he was a lot more than the best man. He was heavily invested financially, emotionally. In fact, all his time was given so that uh, to ensure the success and joy of the wedding ceremony, which could sometimes last for, for days, and some, he would emcee. And I read somewhere that even the, the friend of the bridegroom would actually officiate the wedding and, and perform all the rites. Very, very, very busy. But his mission was to make the groom happy. Now, if you've ever been, um, some of you are, are, are young, maybe eventually one day you'll be a best man or a maid of honor. Maybe you've been one already. Maybe you've been a groomsman or a bridesmaid or par part of a wedding party. You know that during wedding season prep, man, you're busy. You are very, very busy. And you're busy not because of your stuff, but because of their stuff. You got to do everything they want. You got to get on a plane, go to where they want. I don't care where it is in this world. You have to, you have to dress, dress up in things that they want you to wear. I don't care if you don't like the color. You're wearing it and you're going to like it. Right? You're going to go there. You're going to follow their schedule. You're going to dish out cash for this and that, buy gifts for them. You might even have to do a crazy choreographed dance. This was a wedding a few years ago. I had to do a dance and didn't like it, but I did it because I love the guy. You know? But it's driven by love and excitement, not your preference. And that's how John saw himself. I'm Jesus' best man. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. In fact, I'm just not going to do this because that's what a bridegroom does. I'm happy. He says, I rejoice greatly at his voice. And as I'm shining the spotlight on Jesus, I don't care that no one's hearing my voice. I rejoice at his voice. Are there people in your life you're just happy when you hear their voice? I know there's probably people in your life you don't like hearing their voice. Are there people in your life you're just happy to hear their voice? That means you really love them. That means you really want to want them to talk and you prefer them to talk over you and that's how John saw Jesus. My life is one long bachelor's weekend where what do you want to do? It's like, what do you want? No, I don't, it, it doesn't matter what I want. What do you want to do? Is that how you live your life with God? God, what about me? What about me? What about this plan? What about this goal? Instead of God, what do you want me to do? What should I do today? What are your plans for me? When it comes time to make big decisions, like what major are you gonna do? Where, where are you gonna live? Who are you gonna live with? You know, what job are you gonna take? What program are you gonna apply for? Who are you gonna marry? Where are you gonna, where are you gonna buy a house? Where are you gonna live? How much time are you gonna spend in this? You might be invited to serve, and you're deciding, should I serve or not? 
What drives that decision? What drives that decision? What you want to do or what God wants? Whose agenda and will comes first? Is it your happiness first? Or is it really to glorify and make much of God? Wanting to please Him even if it means you got to let go of something. Even if it means you got to sacrifice your schedule or your happiness or your energy. And we're reminded in this message the only reason that John was able to say my joy is complete now is because he's living out his design. And that shows us that our joy is complete when we place Christ at the center because that is truly the way God created us. You know how God created you if you're a Christian is that you would live according to his plan. That you would walk with him. When you deviate from that plan, that's when problems come. That's when you get frustrated. That's when you hold so tightly to your agenda and inevitably, sometimes it'll go well, sometimes, sometimes you'll, you'll enjoy the things that you're pursuing, but sometimes not. And what's going to be exposed is how you react. How do you react to that? Was there ever a point in your life where it's like, man, my life is, is so miserable. Could it be because you ignored something that God wanted you to do? Or you're going against your design, the way God designed you? As we see in the case of John the Baptist, we see on these pages an invitation to live the way God created you. Live a life that's truly free. Don't be a slave. Don't be a slave to your insecurities. Now, how do we do this? Let me close now, the third part. Jesus' power to save. Such an important point here. Because something we need to remember as Christians all the time and this is kind of a, just a theological truth that I want you guys to just put on your mind and heart is that there's always going to be warring desires and natures inside of you. You have your sin nature that wants to go your way, do things your way. But then if you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit and the, and the Spirit's nature in you that wants to go God's way. And they're going to be in conflict with each other. Like, sh like even this morning, if you were like, should I go to church? Oh, I don't want to go to church. Oh, well, I'll go to church. That's a, that's, you point that to what the Bible says. There, there's conflicting dual natures in you. But the fact that the Holy Spirit is in you and you ended up here today, that means He's working in your life and you follow His way. If you're not a Christian here today and as you're hearing some of these words, maybe some of this hits home. You want, you want your life to be happy and secure and even when things don't go your way. Maybe you're tired of constantly being driven by competition, comparing yourself to someone else. When someone upstages you, comes, comes, intrudes your space and seems to do better than you, whether it's intentional or not, it seems like even your best efforts in your life seems to be not enough. A wise person, Theodore Roosevelt, once said, hey, comparison is a thief of joy. It's the enemy of joy. So what do we need to overcome this? In my struggles, uh, you know, the ways of so many days I've dealt with this, like, Dan, just stop thinking these thoughts. Just focus on yourself. Focus on God. You know, just, just, you know, just push through and don't worry about other people. But does that work? Does that work and does that stick? No. Our willpower is so weak. We need change from the inside out. And here's where we remember the true substance and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what it preaches to us in all circumstances. It's about a God who showed us what true humility is. What true self-forgetfulness is. A God who is infinite, deserved all praise, attention, and glory. Not bound by time or space or anything. He shrunk. He decreased so that 
we can increase. He made himself nothing to show us the way to truly be great. Have you heard of a God in any other religion that did that? The world tells us that true greatness is found by being better and having more than those around you. And if you believe that today, I employ to, to tune all that out. That is not where you're going to find true happiness. Maybe temporarily, but what if, what if something happens? What if someone comes and takes it away, or you lose your ability to continue to acquire more? Nothing's guaranteed. The gospel shows us that by making himself nothing, God showed us that the true glory comes by dying, laying down your life. We need to hear this over and over again because for you all who are at work Monday through Friday, you're at your universities Monday through Friday, you're hearing other things. We need to hear the Bible and how it frees us. This God who's infinite made himself weak by becoming a baby born in Bethlehem. He experienced all of our weaknesses. He proclaimed the truth of the gospel, yet he was despised and mocked and he was nailed to a cross where he died in our place to be for us our salvation, to rescue us from some of these difficult things. Why would he do this? When we've done nothing to earn it? We constantly fall short? We'll go back like 10 verses. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, shall not no longer be a slave to your flesh, but have eternal life, and you can experience that eternal life now. He did it for us. He became lower than a despised slave so that we can be seated with him in the heavenly places. It's the great exchange. He decreased so we could increase. That's amazing. John said, this joy of mine is now complete. We're invited to say the same thing. Have you ever been able to really say that? Oh, I have the best ice cream in the world. My joy is complete. <laughs> not, not when it melts. Not when someone steals it from you, right? <laughs> oh, I got this. I finally, I finally got the girl. I finally got the guy. Oh, man, my joy is complete. Oh, yeah? Wait till the first fight. <laughs> wait, wait till you want to scream. <laughs> oh, I got everything I want. I got, the new, I got the new gadget. I got the new car. I got everything. Oh, yeah, wait till it gets scratched. There's no guarantee. Your joy isn't complete when you lose it. And even for myself, I'm like, oh, my, I feel like my joy is complete. Oh, when things are going, my ministry is under control, family's healthy and well, uh, all this is going on. Oh, I'm just a relatively just stress-free season, but always something goes wrong. Oh, something always goes wrong. My joy is only complete when my security and joy is rooted in the perfect God who lowered himself so that I could be lifted up and nothing's ever going to change that. My joy is rooted in the truth that God loves me. He accepts me as I am. I have a place in heaven one day. And if someone else gets more praise than me here, someone gets more attention than me here, this post gets more likes than mine here. If I go out here and people are quoting me, my sermons here, and I mean their sermons there, not even paying attention to mine here, I can say my joy is complete because God loves me. He accepts me as I am. I belong to him. And even if I'm forgotten, people forget my name, people forget who I am, 
I'm remembered and accepted and loved by my Father in heaven. And that's enough for me. Lord, all glory and praise to you. Because my life is yours. My life is yours. I'm just a friend of the bridegroom. Can I ask you, is that how you're living? Do you see yourself as the best man? Living to lift up Christ? If not, that's fine. All you need to do is visit the gospel again. Gaze at the face of your humble, loving Savior. He doesn't compare you to the person next to you. He doesn't compare you to your lab partner. He doesn't compare you to your coworker or that other, those other parents, that other family, or your brother or sister. No, it doesn't matter. He sees you. And he pours his love over you. You are one with Christ. You cannot be more loved than you are right now. John the Baptist will one day be imprisoned. He will lose his life. But this passage in John, uh, it ended well for him because he was at peace and he had joy. He said, I am the voice preparing the way for Christ, and Christ came. Not a lot of prophets got to see the fulfillment of their messages. He did. And as we see the theological, theological significance of, of the water changing into wine and everything that's unpacking, it's a new kingdom coming. The old system of things has been abolished. It's the new wine, the new age, the new covenant. It's overshadowing everything, a covenant of grace. We're not required to go through these ridiculous rituals to make yourself presentable to God. It's been given to you by grace through faith alone. And for those who would believe, they'll be born again and receive everlasting life. And so John saw that. It's like amazing, amazing grace. My joy is complete. And I, want, I'm, I don't know about you, but I want to be able to say that. Because we live on this side of the New Testament. We can see that we have a power in the resurrection of Jesus Christ to live in freedom, freedom from sin. We walk by grace. We're looking forward to, to, to the new heavens one day. And so there's no reason for us to allow ourselves to be enslaved by what takes away our joy. You know, it takes humility to say, I'm not that important. It takes humility to say, it's okay if you forget my name. It's okay if you forget my sermon. It's okay if you forget my works, my song, my masterpiece. It's okay if you forget my test score, my resume. I am seen and known by the one who matters most. He'll take care of all that. He'll, his will be done in my life. Someone's always going to be stronger, prettier, more fit, more smart. But you belong to God. It's a freedom of self-forgetfulness. Tim Keller in his book, called freedom of self-forgetfulness, says this, gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things to myself. It's an end to thoughts such as, I'm in this room with these people, but does that make me look good? Can you imagine thinking that? You're sitting in CG. It's like, what do people think of me? Does my answers sound good? Am I dressed good? That's just so, that man, that, that causes so much stress because it's not supposed to be about us. It's about God. Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. You're more interested in what other people have to say, and you're more interested in God being glorified. 
In fact, I stopped thinking about myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness, the blessed, I love this, the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. Friends, true freedom is possible. We can be free from all those worries, anger, insecurities, and jealousies. The blessed rest that God provides, He says, come, take it by faith. One day you're going to rest forever in heaven where you're going to forget about all this. I've experienced it here in the presence of God today. Let's join with John the Baptist and say, I am not the Christ. I never was. I lift up Christ. We can be at rest as long as he is exalted and sit there and let's be happy. Let's rejoice. Let's look at God. We will never lose him if you belong to him. All the other stuff, man, you're going to just waste so much energy chasing after. God, he says, I am yours and you are mine. Worship him and be blessed today. Let's pray.